Good morning, everybody. Good to have you with me again on this Sunday morning here at the Digital Cathedral. Hope you're having a, a good morning. You got your coffee ready, your Bible handy, and you're ready to get into the Word. If you've been following me the last few weeks, we've kind of been doing some reverse and going back and covering some of the things that we taught earlier in our development as a group of grace people. And I think that it's important once in a while just to go back and cover the basics. The way it looks, this is going to take me, this is number five this morning. It's going to take me probably 12 weeks to get finished what I want to get finished. And let me tell you what I'm really after in this. What I, here's what I feel the Spirit of God is trying to break through to us by having us go back and retrace some of the things that we've learned and put a little bit more emphasis in some areas and maybe expand on some things, give a little bit of illumination that we haven't done before. Here's why I think it's important for you. <clears throat> what we're really doing here is we're talking about the development of a revolutionary grace culture. And as we talk about that, it's going to be extremely important that you understand the basics of what comprise the culture. A culture basically <clears throat> is the collective thinking of a group of people. The collective thinking of a group of people. We're forming some collective thinking here at the Digital Cathedral, and we're certainly not the only ones around the world. This is happening every place right now, that people are beginning to come out and beginning to say, okay, here's, here's what we stand for. Here's what a grace culture is all about. The collective thinking of a group of people. A country can have a culture. We have a culture here in the United States. Some of you are from uh, other, other countries. You have a culture. You have a, you have a collective thought process that fits your culture. Uh, a team can have a culture. A church can have a culture. A, the culture of a Presbyterian church is entirely different than the culture of a Pentecostal church. So as you develop culture, and this is what's going on now with those of us that have embraced grace, finished work of the cross, uh, unconditional love, mercy that endures forever, we're developing a culture that is influencing the world that we live in. And given enough time, one culture can influence and actually supplant another culture. And I think we're seeing that take place right now in our world, which is the world of spirituality. The culture of grace is evaporating the culture of man-made religion, and the process is well underway. It's happening. It has become a tsunami. It, there's no question that man-made religion is in a heap of trouble when it comes to influence. Because there are people that are rising up around the world that are saying, wait a minute, this is not what I see. This is not, I, this is what I've always been taught, but this is not making any sense to me. This is not what the spirit of truth is, is, is revealing to us. So I want, I want us to know that the world is going to know us as a culture by the truths that we collectively embrace. And more importantly, the truths that we demonstrate. They're going to know us by the truths that we demonstrate and we embrace much more than our theology. There is not a grace, there is not a uniform grace theology. And I think that the, the Father has designed it that way on purpose because the world that is looking for the manifestation of the sons of God, the world, is, the world could care less what our, our eschatology, our end time beliefs are. The world could care less about what our formula for salvation is. They're looking for the manifestation of the sons of God. And so God is developing us here at the Digital Cathedral as a prototype culture that has a community. We're really a community within this culture. The culture is worldwide. We're one of many 
communities that are beginning to practice what the influence in the culture is that the Father is developing within us. So the question is, what does it look like? What does this grace culture look like? It begins with the foundation of grace. Everything we're building on and have built on for several years now has been on the foundation of grace. And I gave you a very simplistic definition of grace that I think is workable, one that you can apply and one that you can use in your discussion with people. We said very simply that grace is the unconditional love of God that is extended toward us. Unconditional love of God extended toward us through which he embraces us and brings us into his very life. Now I've taken, I took a whole session and broke that, that definition down for you a couple sessions ago. So if you want to hear a whole teaching on that, you can go back and hear it. But grace, this is, this is what we build on. The unconditional love of God that has been extended toward us. It's not something we've earned. It's not something we've merited. And we go over this all the time because we have this propensity to get back to think we have to earn our favor from God. And it's not anything that we can do. There's no conditions to it unconditional love that he has extended to us. He's the initiator. He's the one that has taken the advanced steps. And through this unconditional love, he has embraced us, all of us. It's very inclusive. Grace is inclusive. There's nobody out, nobody in. There's no insiders, no outsiders, haves or haves nots. He has included us all and brought us into his very life. So that's the foundation. And then we have begun to construct some pillars. And I want to put number pillar number two down this morning, we talked about pillar number one last week, which I'll review for just a couple minutes uh, in a second. But here's what, here's what I want. I want you to be able to converse about this culture that you're a part of. If somebody says, well, what, what do you really believe about grace? I want you to be able to say, I believe that grace is the unconditional love of God that he's extended toward us. And it, it has embraced us and brought us into his very life. And as we tick these pillars off, and there's basically five pillars that I think are at least revelatory right now within our culture and make us distinctive from the evangelical community that the Father is using to open the eyes of people all around the world, I want you to be able to converse these five pillars. I want you to be able to, to, be able to have confidence that whenever a discussion comes up, you don't have to run to get somebody, but you're actually able within yourself to speak and to articulate what it is that you believe. So we be, we're beginning with the pillars. We're beginning to put some pillars up. And once we get our minds around that first pillar that I talked about last week in a grace culture, which is a right concept of God. Everything hinges on how you see the Father. Everything hinges the way you see yourself, the way you see other people, the way you see the world, uh, the events of the world, all, all that hinges on your perception of the Father, which, which equates to him, we said last week, to him being a relational Father. We said that the right concept, and we've spent, again, an, an entire teaching on it, so you can go back and pick up number four, which is the first pillar, our perception of the Father. And we said that the right perception of the Father is to always see him relational. Above everything else, he is a God of relation. And that's what our definition of grace says. Our definition of grace says that he is a giver of unconditional love that has embraced us. It's relationship. And he's brought us into his very life. That's relationship. So once we get our head around a relational father that is not distant, that has not absconded from claiming us, and loving us, and being part of, of us, and us being part of him, 
John said it so well in John 14, 20, that in that day we would know that we are in the Father. The Father's in us. We're in Jesus, and Jesus is in us, and Jesus is in the Father. And the three of us form this, this group together along with the Spirit. We have, a, we have a circle of relationship. He's a relational Father. Now, pillar number two is going to be this. We're going to have to identify the character of that relational Father. And this is very important this morning. We're going to get into pillar number two, which is to identify the character of the relational father. What, what is his character? What is the main thrust of his being? Many would say that the main thing that God is, is holy. That's what we, we cut our teeth on. He's a God of holiness. That's true. But the meaning of holy, I think, is not absolutely correct in the way that we've embraced it, many of us, for a long, long time. Many see holiness as this, how can I phrase it, kind of a divine cleanliness. He's squeaky clean, and he's so sterile and clean that, that the very presence of sin causes him to recoil back. So when we sin, he recoils back from us. He can't be around sin. He can't be around, he can't be around anything that is contrary to cleanliness. You know, absolute spiritual, uh, absolute spiritual, being so clean that he squeaks. And that's, that's how we've seen him. Yet, we read this. In 2 in Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21, it says that he was made sin with our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let me paraphrase that. The one that didn't know any sin was made sin with our sin. That we who knew no righteousness might be made the righteousness of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here's an interesting thing. When God became flesh, he rushed toward people that were trapped in sin. He didn't avoid people that were, he didn't avoid the Zacchaeuses. He didn't avoid the woman that was caught in adultery. He didn't avoid the tax collector, Matthew. He didn't, uh, he didn't avoid Peter, the tough, rough talking, probably cussing fisherman. Instead, his unconditional love reached out and embraced and brought them all into the circle. So it's interesting that we have said, yes, God is, is, is holy, but yet Jesus stepped into a world of sin and spent his entire life. His entire life was, was spent preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and the gospel of the kingdom was to seek and to save that which was lost, that which felt alienation, that which felt separated from God. Jesus spent his, his, the, the entire thrust of what Jesus was about was to seek and to save that which was lost. Now compare that with how we have projected a darkened perception onto God about who he is. Here's what we've done. Here's what we've done. We've taken our human response to sin. We've taken our human response to evil, to those that we think are perpetrators of, uh, of darkness. And we have said, that's how God sees them as well. We've taken how we see people and we've said, that's how God sees people. We think that he sees people in sin just the way that we see them. And so we have kind of passed that baseless understanding from generation to generation to generation until it has been unchallenged. Essentially, we've created a God after our image and our likeness. We've, we've created a God that carries on the characteristics that we've created, much of it through religion. And we have created a God that is nothing like the one that Jesus presented to us. 
And we all know we've spent how much time at the digital cathedral talking about if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's the prototype. He's the express image of the Father. So we've ended up with this religious idea of a God who is obsessed with us avoiding sin and doing the right thing. That's, that's what the whole ball game is about in religion, is God hates sin. God can't be around sinners. He's too clean for that. And so the whole message of the church has been avoiding sin, getting saved from sin, making an eternal home in heaven, and avoiding hell, doing the right thing. Can I just tell you this morning, that pillar number one, that relational father, he's way more interested in relationship and developing relationship with us than he is rules. He is, he is not a God that's all about rules. He's far more devoted to people than he is moved by their performance. Good news this morning. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at you through the filter of performance. He's able to see you for who you be, not what you do. And who we be outweighs what we do every time. Who we, what we do is not our identity. If you're still identifying yourself by your actions, you're identifying yourself in a wrong way. You need to identify yourself in who you be, and you be the image and the likeness of God. You be a partaker of the divine nature. You be a son that he has uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The reason that God is more interested in relationship than anything else because of the second pillar. Right? Pillar number one, he's a relational God. Pillar number two, we need to really track down the character and how, what, how this, what, what drives this relational father. And that takes us to pillar number two, which is God is love. I know you've heard that a million times, but I'm gonna deep dive that subject this morning because I don't think, I don't think many of us, even here at the Digital Cathedral, are, are, are fully aware of how deep that love goes, how unconditional it really is. It's the one single motivation that has to be behind everything that he does. He does absolutely nothing but what it comes from love. Let, let me read a, a, a scripture here. I, I meant to read a little, a little bit earlier. I wanted to pick up a scripture from John chapter 13 and verse 34, verse 35. Then I want to go over to 1 John. But here's, here's an expression that Jesus is saying, okay, here's who I am and here's who I want you to be. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. The words agape, unconditional, God kind of love. As I have loved you that you may love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The, the world, when they look at the grace culture, when they look at the grace community, see the community is a group of people that reflect the bigger culture. The culture is being developed all over the world right now. There's a, there's a humongous mass of people that are, that are coming, that are flooding in to grace out of legalism. Now, communities like the Digital Cathedral, we're hooking into that and, and we're beginning to um, form relationships around the world. Many of you on Facebook have friends from you know, multiple nations and you're sharing together and you're making connection. Who would ever thought that we could connect to people, <clears throat> excuse me, around the world and be able to say, okay, look, here's what we're believing about grace that it's the unconditional love of God. He's embraced us, brought us into his life. Here's how we're seeing the Father. Here's our perception. He's totally relational in everything that he does. So let, let, me, let me just nail this down for you. God is love. That's his character trait. Everything has got to come out of that. He's 100% love. He's not 99%, 85%. He's 100% love. 
That means every characteristic that you think of from the Father has to come through the motivation of love, through the heart of love, through the end game of love. Now watch what it says over here in 1 John chapter 4. Come almost to the back of your book. I hope once in a while you, you grab your Bible and follow along with me because nobody's Bible reads like your Bible. And you probably can see some things out of your Bible that just listening to me read, you might not catch. Watch what he says here. First <clears throat> John chapter 4, and let me, let me pick it up in verse 7. First John chapter 4, verse 7. I'm going to read down through verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. What's the mark of being born of God? That you love. That's exactly what Jesus said back in, in the Gospel of John. He said, a new commandment I've given you, that you love one another. Then we come over, okay, here's how God thinks. Here's how God thinks. Here's his character right here, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who is born of God and knows God, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That eighth verse, is, that's the only place that there's a definition of God absolutely throughout the Scripture. God is love. And he says in that eighth verse, he who does not love does not know God. So when we walk around with a judgmental attitude, when we spent years judging people, separating people, putting them outside and us inside, that was not acting in a love of God. We were not, we didn't know God. If we would have known God, we would have never acted that way. We were acting in ignorance. We were acting in darkness. But when the light began to shine and began to show us its love, we began to respond to it. So a grace community, a collection of people reflecting a larger culture are going to begin to love one another. And this is what the world is going to see. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By what? Your theology? By your rigid standards? By your legalistic approach? By your perfect theology? No. No. They're going to see the culture that moves and lives and demonstrates and manifests that love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Here's how God's love manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might, and that's a bad translation. If you look the word up, it should be would. That we would live through him. See, when they, when they, the King James guys put this thing together, they needed the church. They weren't, the church was in cahoots with the government, so they took words and tweaked them inaccurately to make us dependent that we might have, might have life, we might live through him, but the church is going to tell you what you've got to do to be able to live through him. No, 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 no. Let me read that ninth verse like it should be read. In this the love of God was manifested toward us. Here's God's love towards you. Here's what it looks like. He sent his only begotten son into the world that we would live through him. Absolutely. No, no two ways about it. My electricity just flashed. Um, absolutely no two ways about it. He demonstrated that love toward us. All right, let me go on to verse 10. And this is the love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us that he might be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we ought also to love one another. So we, we, we get a, a powerful rendition there that his, his relationship to us is based on love and they're tied together inseparably. I took the two and I separated them on purpose. I, I, did, the, I did the relational God last week the right perception of God being relational. And I wanted to come this week and, and marry. I wanted to tie his character 
to that relationship. And you can see that they, they work together. He's a God of relationship, and that relationship stands out of love. He's love because he's relational. And he's relational because he's love. So whenever we speak about the Father, whenever we speak about God, to speak the greatest truth about him means that we're going to have to only speak about the love that he has for us. And everything else flows from that. That's God's choice. God made a choice. He made an absolute choice. And, you know, he's, he's the dad. <laughs> he made a choice to be father of all and to be in relationship to all. There is, there is no other life force. I mean, think about it for just a minute with me. Where else are you going to go to get life except from the giver of life who's God himself? Where, where else could that, that, that lump of clay receive life except God blew breath into his nostrils? Where could you get the breath of life except when you popped out of your mama's womb and the doctor spanked your hiney and you took a breath? Where did you get that breath? Who gave you the ability to get that breath? There's only one source of life. Evil has no source of life. The devil is not a life giver. You say, well, what about when Jesus went over there and said, you, you act like your father, the devil. He was, he was exaggerating and he was saying, you guys act like you're not even connected to God. You act like, you're acting like something you're not. So there's only one life source. Let's get that down. And that life source emanates and it flows out of, out of love. So if there's one word that we're going to use to talk about the character of our Father, it has to be the word love. If you extract pure love from God, you're not going to know any more about Him than my pet cat, Abby, knows about algebra. <clears throat> and she can't work any algebraic problems and you are not going to be able to get any revelation an insight about the Father till these first two pillars. You see him as totally relational, and you understand that the character from which he works is always love. Nothing that God does can originate or operate from any place. It cannot contradict the love that he has. There's no response that's demanded to his love. There's no choice that you have to make. There's no prayer that you have to pray to receive his love. It just is. And it's too late. If you don't want him to love you, it's too late. He already does. And if he does anything outside of love, he's acting contrary to his nature. All right, now here's the million dollar question. Here's the million dollar question that a grace culture has got to answer so that a grace community like the Digital Cathedral will know what to practice, what, what to believe, what to think. Right? Here's the million dollar question. Is God part love or is God pure love? Now, I've pretty well let the cat out of the bag this morning <clears throat> as to what the culture's response needs to be so that the community can live it out. And I'm bringing this up because a, a lot of us come from backgrounds in an evangelical church and an evangelical Christian would argue that, God, that God's love is simply one part of his character. Yet we just read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, God is love, period. There was no asterisk by that where we looked down at the bottom of the page and said that he's also holiness or he's also justice or he's wrath or God is punishment. And 
religion would say, you know what? God's love on one side of the coin, but you flip the other side of the coin over. He's holy. He's just. He's, he, he can be full of wrath. He can be full of anger. He can be a punishing, judicial God. Let me tell you something. There is no other side of the coin. There is no other side to God. Those things, every one of those things, God's wrath flows out of love. You know, you know what God's wrath is? God's wrath is a, is a heated emotion toward what hurts his children. If you've ever had a child that's on drugs, or you've had a child that's, you know, gone really off the deep end in some way, you love that child, but you're angry about the thing that's hurting your child. You're like a mama bear, like a papa bear. There's something hurting your child. You detest that thing that's hurting your child. And God takes a lot of anger out on those things that are destroying and hurting his children today. All right, A grace culture sees a relational God that only knows how to love. He knows nothing else. However, however, because of our guilt, because of our shame, we've created this wrathful, judgmental God to punish us and separate himself from us when we sin. We, we've created a God in our mind that's 180 degrees from what Jesus came to demonstrate. You know why we did that? Because we felt like we deserved it. We felt when, when, when we exclude God, when we you know, take his name in vain, when we rob or steal, whatever the deal is, we feel like we need to be punished. So we created this God in our mind. It's hard for us to imagine that when we do something so contrary to his nature that he still accepts us and loves us. That's why you're always hit with, with Adolf Hitler. You know, when you get to teach in grace, first thing out of the bag, are you telling me that God loves Adolf Hitler? Are you telling me Hitler's gonna be in heaven? Are you, see, we, we immediately go to the extreme because that's how we see him. We see him through that filter, so we think that God sees him the same way. If you're seeing Adolf Hitler through the lens of revenge and hate and animosity, and you think God sees him the same way, then you have a perverted view of God. The exact representation of the Father, Jesus, revealed nothing to us about a legalistic God that was obsessed with people's behavior over their well-being. Jesus never demonstrated it. Find me one person in the Gospels that was jacked up, messed up that Jesus condemned. Find me one person in the gospel. I don't care. I, I don't care. Everybody that he came in, in association with that was that the church would reject today. Say this God doesn't care about that person. That person is separated from God. That person is is lost. That person is undone. That's the person Jesus embraced. The only people Jesus lowered the boom on was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people. Jesus showed us that this self-constructed view of God that we have, that is after our image and our likeness, is wrong. That God isn't like that at all. He doesn't juggle several parts of his character depending on the situation. He isn't, he, he's not two-faced. One face is not wrath and the other face love. He's not two-faced. He doesn't operate out of all different kind of personality defects. He's not schizophrenic. He doesn't have a multiple personality disorder. There is one driving force character that God has, and it's simply love. Everything that we understand about him has got to come through this pipeline 
of love. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just raring on this this morning because I, I want us to be so uh, believing, so entrenched in love that has no condition, no stipulation, has nothing attached to it, no if, ands, or buts. It's just pure. If you, if you have a, a pure chocolate bar, that means there's no peanut butter in it. If you have a pure chocolate bar, there's no nuts in it. You have a pure chocolate bar, it's only chocolate. So when we say that God is love, there's no peanut butter to him. There's no nuts in there. It's just love. It's just simply who he is. Right, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Let's read this again. John chapter 14, and let me pick it up with verse 7. Here's what Jesus said. I, you know this scripture, but let it sink in this morning. I'm going to read this again for the first time. John chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. I mean, that's a powerful statement Jesus is saying. He's saying, If you have known me, if you have seen me, then from this point forward, you're going to know the Father. Isaiah couldn't say that. Jeremiah couldn't say that. Moses never said it. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be good. We'll, we'll understand it. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. I can stop right there and go on a, on a huge rabbit trail. Jesus was God in the flesh. And yet Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I see the Father say. It's the Father that's in me that does the works. There's a measure of rule. And I'm going to do a whole teaching on this before long. Every son of God is a God, but it has measure of rule. Jesus was fully God, but he had a measure of rule. He had a, he had a, a sphere that he functioned in. Okay. In verse 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe the, me for the sake of the works themselves. The only works that Jesus ever did came out of, out of a heart of compassion and love. You want to know what his works were? I don't have time to get into it this morning, but let me just, let me just give you a couple of scriptures that will show you what the works of Jesus was. This is what the Father inspired him to do. Luke 4.18 Luke 4, 18, write that down. Come back and look at it. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. I want to read, I want to read that one for you real quick. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, because this, this is one you may want to remember. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. That's, that's what Jesus was doing. He was preaching, teaching, and healing. Everything that he did comes out of that heart of love. So love isn't one piece of the pie. Anger, another piece of the pie. Vengeance and wrath, other pieces of the pie. Justice, a piece of the pie. You know what justice really means? Justice means to bring things back into balance. It means to make what is wrong right. That's what justice does. The justice of God is going to look at what is wrong and make it right. 
Justice looks at sin as a disease that needs to be healed rather than a wrong that needs to be punished. People that are in sin, they, they don't know what they're doing and they're suffering their own consequences of death. They are not connected to divine life. They've broken that connection of the, the vine to the branch. The wages of sin is death. It's not the punishment of God. Sin carries its own kickback. So wrath is not one piece of the pie. Punishment, love, love is the crust. Can I say it like this? Love is the crust that holds the whole pie together. Every piece of the pie has to touch the crust. The crust has to come through every piece of the pie. So let me explain. Let me explain why religion does not buy that God is pure love. They say it. They say God is unconditional love but they don't believe it. Let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now why we stumbled on this back in our religious days. I'm going to tell you why religion does not believe that God only works out of a character of love. <clears throat> All right, let me preface that by saying relationship and love are inseparable. Right? Last week I talked about a relational God. This week I'm talking about love. Those two are inseparable. The depth of the relationship determines the depth of the love. The depth of the relationship determines the death of the love. For example, for example, it's only natural, no condemnation on this, it's only natural that you love your children more than children of people that you never met because the relationship is different. The relationship you have with your children is much deeper than the relationship you have with my children. So if push comes to shove, you're going to favor your children over my children because the relationship is different. Can you see that? So if, now let me bring this into the, into the, the culture of, of religion. If, if you believe that there are people or people groups that are outside of God, that are not in relationship to Him, that are not attached to Him, have no relationship with Him, then it becomes natural to assume that the love of God does not extend to them to the level that we're talking about this morning. And so another part of God surfaces to deal with them. It may be anger. Maybe it may be uh, vindictiveness. It may be uh, punishment. But another part of God is going to unveil itself you think because you've judged them, you have no relationship with them. And since you have no relationship, you have no tie. You don't love them unconditionally. So you look at them as being outside of God's unconditional love because they're outside of your unconditional love. Now you understand why Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you have loved one for another. I mean, the apostle Paul worked overtime to establish this global relationship thereby a global unconditional love that the Father has with everybody. For example, I read it often because I think it's such a proof text scripture, Ephesians 4, 6. There is one God and Father of all, who is above all, who's through all, listen, and in all. Let me read you a couple more. Acts chapter 17, Paul went out of his way constantly to try to make sure that this was looked upon universally as a relational father. And because now he has relationship, he has every right to love us unconditionally. So in our religious days, we thought people had no relationship with God. That group over there, they don't have a relationship with God. Therefore, he doesn't love them to the degree that he may love somebody that has relationship with him. But even we looked at ourselves with God and we thought, you know what? 
the unconditional love of God does carry some conditions of obedience. It carries a condition of sacrifice. It can dairy, uh, contains a condition of X, Y, or Z. And so we never felt it was unconditional. There was always a condition. And we looked at other people and, and said, man, they, they have no relationship with God. Therefore, love can't be that deep. All right. Love always is tied to relationship. The deeper the relationship, the deeper the love. So if you want to really experience the love of God, you have to deep dive relationship. So you need to go back last week and make sure that you understand God's relational. He's not judicial. He's not judgmental. He's totally relational. And the character trait of that relational God is pure love, 100%. 100% chocolate. No, 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 no peanut butter, right? Now watch what he says here. This is, this is the people that are idol worshipers. These, these, the church would look at these people. These people are headed straight to hell. And Jesus, and Paul says this, Acts 17, verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Watch verse 28. For it's in him, idol worshipers, it's in him people group that we don't think deserve it, that we live and move and have our being. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, idol worshiper, you are the offspring of God. Paul's talking to those guys on Mars Hill that the church would say a million miles away from God. He said, we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and by men's devising. He said, no, that's not what it is. He said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands that all men everywhere change your mind. It's the word repent. So what he was doing is he was setting these guys up. He's doing what we need to do as a grace culture. He's saying, you're in. God loves you. We're all the offspring of God. God is your father. It's in him we live and move and have our being. His nature is not something you form with your hands. It's not gold. It's not the idols that they had busied themselves making. He's saying it's not that at all. He resides within you. He loves you. Watch what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, a little bit more to the right in your Bible. I'm just putting some of these down. And one of the reasons I wanted to go back over some foundations is so that you could take some notes, you could listen to these teachings, and you could be able to, to assimilate this into your life to the degree that you can now express it and talk to people about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. For us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Now that's the kicker right there. There is not in everyone the knowledge, verse 7 says, of verse 6, that there's one God, the Father of whom are all things, the Father of whom are all one thing. He's the father of all things. He is the, there's only one father who's above all, through all, and in all. And that's what Paul's saying. But he says in verse 7, everybody gets it. Not everybody sees it. So here, here's what I'm trying to say today. We have relationship with him so that we can experience his love. He's a relational God, pillar number one, so that number two, we can understand his love toward us. Undiluted, totally undiluted. 
Malachi chapter 2. I got to hurry along this morning. I'm spending too much time on some of this. But I just want you to get it so bad. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 10. Even in the Old Covenant, they said, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Did you hear that? This is what Malachi says. Have, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? All right. So here's the bottom line on this. Listen. In a grace culture, pillar number one, the right concept of God is relational. It's not judicial. So then pillar number two, God is pure love. And that becomes foundational. Those two, those two pillars right there, the relational God and the foundation of, and, the, and the pillar of love, pillar of relationship, pillar of love, that separates a grace community from religion right there because religion does not embrace either one of those pillars to the degree that we're talking about this morning. They're all contingent on you doing something. And I'm driving home this morning that, that, that the relational father whose nature is pure love is not contingent on anything. We don't see God at the end of the day as being judicial. We see him as only acting in love toward us. Religion would say he is judicial and he only acts in love toward those that have taken a step toward him and embraced him and have come into relationship with him. And everybody else does not meet the stipulation. Therefore, God has no relationship. Therefore, the love of God does not extend to them. We've fabricated this stuff, man. We've projected it onto God. God's relationship and love are not triggered by man's choices. That is so revolutionary. God's relationship, pillar one, and his love toward us unconditional, pillar two, is not triggered by your choice. It's not triggered by your decision. It's not triggered by your virtuous actions. We don't prove we have value and then God loves us. That's, I think that's kind of the concept we had. We, we felt we had to establish some value. And the value we established was coming to God and saying, God, I want a relationship with you. I, wanna, I want you to be my father. I want to be your child. And we'd ask him. In fact, it's the opposite. It's not based on your choice. It's not based on your decision, your actions. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I'm, make, I'm making this as scriptural as I possibly can this morning because... Just because <laughs> I want you to, I want to cement this into our thinking. Titus chapter three. I want you to see how contrary to choice, decision, virtuous living this whole thing is. Titus chapter three, verse three. <clears throat> Titus chapter three and verse three. He says, "For we ourselves were once also." Listen to how we were. See if this describes you in any way, shape, or form. We were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts, pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. But, verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, when it appeared, when we got it, when we saw it, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So how did he save us? Did he save us by my prayer? Did he save us by my belief, by my faith? Did he save me by my choice, my decision, my actions? Did he save me because all of a sudden now I proved to him I had value and I was worth saving? No. According to his mercy, he saved us 
through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So do you see this was totally apart. Titus is saying this is totally apart from anything you did. In fact, we were messed up, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, but verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God appeared toward us. The kindness and the love of God. When the relationship and the love of God Kindness is relationship. When the, we could phrase it that way. When the kindness or the relational aspect of God and his love of God was revealed to us, not because of works of righteousness, verse 5, which we did, but according to his mercy, he saved us and he washed us and he regenerated us. So his loving nature gives great value to us by the fact that he's in relationship to us by his choice. He loves us by his choice. That gives us value. You are loved by God and that gives you value. You are the pearl of great price, of great value. You are the treasure in the field that the man sold everything he had, which the father did, gave the very best. He sold everything he had, gave Jesus, that he could purchase the field, that he could purchase, purchase you. He loves you. It's not your acceptance of him that creates relationship. What creates relationship is his acceptance of you. The good news of the gospel is not that you accept Jesus into your heart. The good news of the gospel is he's already accepted you into his heart. He's already embraced you and brought you into his life. John chapter 15 verse 16 says, we don't love him and therefore he loves us. John chapter 15 and verse 16 says, we have not chosen him. In fact, he's chosen us. Then when you come over to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, it says we love him because he first loved us. He's always the initiator. That's what relational God does. That's what God of love does. The relationship and the love are tied together. He embraced us. He desires the relationship. He wants it to be known to us. I think it's sad in the Father's heart over the last 2,000 years that man has built these, this, these walls, these separations. And we've devised this God that is nothing like Jesus. I, I know well the long line of objections that people give to what I'm teaching this morning. I, I know them all. People are, people, here's the first thing. Are you telling me, are you telling me this morning that if I turn my back on God, I renounce him, walk away from him, tell him I want nothing to do with him. Are you suggesting that God still loves me and accepts me? That's exactly what I'm suggesting. That's exactly the case I'm laying out to you this morning as hard as I can lay it out. Yes, God loves us, but pastor, you need to be careful this morning. You need to be you can go too far with this with this grace stuff. You can go too far with this love stuff. You can make cheap grace. No, cheap is too expensive. It's free. It's free. It's not cheap. It's free. It's grace is not greasy. Law is law is greasy. Law is going to help you to slide right into sin. The strength of sin is law, not grace. That's what scripture says. That's what your book tells you. Well, can you fall from grace? Absolutely, you can fall from grace. You know how? Galatians chapter 5, verse 4 says that you have fallen from grace when you put yourself back under the law. That's how you fall from grace. Sin does not make you fall from grace. It's not going to break your relationship to God. Do you think the blood of Jesus is not stronger than anything that you could do yourself? Do you think when God embraced you, when he brought you into his life, that some jive action that you would do would break that relationship? I don't think so. There may be some things that you still wrestle with, some things that you can't reconcile in your thinking that you say, man, this is so wrong. I don't see how God could ever overlook that. God doesn't overlook anything. It's the goodness of God that leads us to change our mind. 
people that are involved in things that are unseemly, things that are not right, those things carry their own punishment. The Father's love that is unmeasurable. Father's love that's unconditional. It's irrevocable. It's over the top. It's scandalous. It's outlandishly good. It only comes by revelation. Let me give you a scripture on that. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Let me read verse 17 and verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 3. He said that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. I'm, I'm rooting you in love this morning. I'm grounding you in love. I'm tying you to a relational father. Can you feel that? Can you feel his embrace this morning that is never going to let you go? Can you feel that love that is scandalous? It's over the top good. He said, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the height, to know the love of God which passes knowledge. Watch. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Manifesting sons need to be filled with the fullness of God, which you are. You're already filled with it. And the only thing that is stopping you is a recognition of what that fullness of God really involves. But when you know the height, the depth, the length, the width of the love of God, which passes your mental understanding, you're going to progressively recognize how much God you have, how much God you are. It's going to begin to dawn on you. Right now, it's a little too far for some people. But when you're filled with the fullness of God, he's trying to tell you something. So that's, that's what Paul said. Paul was trying to bring us into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. So love is not an if. There's no because to love. There is no, uh, uh, you know, stipulation to love. Love is in any way. <laughs> he loves us anyway. It's, it's even though. We're, we're, we have some things that aren't perfectly right. He loves us anyway, right? So, you know what? We've chosen to apprehend what we can't comprehend up to this point. I, can, I cannot comprehend the depth of this Father's love for me, but I'm, 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 I'm apprehending it. If you, if you choose to embrace a love that is bigger and better than anything that you've ever thought possible, more exhilarating than anything you've ever known. That's your, that's your choice. You can do that. All I can tell you is that this love is beyond our wildest imaginations. It's beyond sensibilities of religious thought or, or argument. It's beyond all that. But I can tell you this. It's changing all of us every day. His love is a life-changing force. His love is conforming you to the image of Christ. And what Paul said in that that third chapter of Ephesians is mind-blowing, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. What's the key to that? Knowing the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of God. He said, when you're filled with that, you'll be filled with the fullness of God because God is love, nothing else. He's nothing else. You may fall down, you may give up, you may turn your back, decide you've had enough, walk away. And when you have no faith, when you come to a point when you're absolutely faithless, you know what 2 Timothy 2.13 says? That when you're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This love is so big, so strong, so powerful, that if you reject him, 
He will reject your rejection. I don't have time to get into that scripture, but he will reject your rejection. Do you know why? Because he chose to be in relationship with you. I'm going to close. My time is up. My time is up. I want to close with this because I want you to see how tight the relationship is. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Thank you for staying with me this whole, whole time this morning. Hope it's been valuable for you. All right, I want you to see how tight this relationship is. Watch. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. All right, he foreknew everybody. Not a select few. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. What did he predestine those that he foreknew? He foreknew everybody. You didn't slip through the cracks and were popped out of your mama's belly one day and God goes, oh my gosh, that's a, that was a surprise. I didn't know Billy Bob was, was coming into the earth. No, he foreknew everybody. Those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that will take place, doesn't matter how many, how many eons of time it takes that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now watch this, moreover, or in addition to being predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, moreover, those that he predestined, he also called. You are called this morning. Those he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. You know what glorified means? It means to celebrate. It means to honor, to make, to, to make renowned, to fill up with dignity and worth. So every person, that he foreknew, which is everybody, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In addition to that, he called you. He justified you. He glorified you. So this morning, this morning, this beautiful gospel and all that it is, the relationship and the love to you is in his hands. And I will just close with this. I'll close with this. I'm done. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. I've just taken the responsibility of your life off of your hands and I've put it onto his hands. You are wired in such a way that you'll respond to his relationship and to his love. It's only a matter of time. Most of it is flushing out all the God that we created in our image and our likeness and letting the fullness of the Godhead dwell in you bodily as it did Jesus. That's what Colossians 2, 8 and 9 says. You're complete in him. Letting, it, letting that fullness flow, man. Letting down the barriers. Letting down all of the arguments. Forgetting all that stuff. Trashing it. And knowing that God only cares about one thing. He's not concerned about your behavior. He's concerned about loving you. And you knowing that he loves you because he knows that this unconditional love will take care of the behavior. It'll transform your life. And it's doing right, right now to most everyone that I run into that has come into this grace culture. All right, God bless you. Thank you for being with me this morning. Don't forget we have the Secret Place Wednesday night back next week at the Digital Cathedral. And uh, I wanna talk about this second pillar again. I wanna talk about how we express this love, how we, put, how we put wheels to it, how we put legs to it. We've talked about it from God to us. I wanna talk about us manifesting and us flowing it from us. It comes in, it needs to flow out. Amen. God bless you. See you next time at the Digital Cathedral.